Well, thanks, Hans. If you want to pull out your outline, there'll be plenty of space to take some notes today. But over the past few months, we've been looking at the book of Revelation. We've been hearing what God has to say to us from it. And it's been pretty tricky. Uh, I don't know if you found that yourself. Uh, it's been pretty trippy as well, trying to understand the different pictures that we have that are here. And over the last few weeks, we've seen judgment upon judgment upon judgment. If I'm honest, it's felt pretty dark. There's a sense where we could laugh today at that kids' talk that helpfully looked at the reality of the books with a record of our lives and also um, the reality of the book of life. But there's a real weight to it, isn't there? Judgment is coming. There's a sense where that kind of message, that judgment is coming, feels so antiquated in the world around us today. There's a sense where we go, oh, do we really want to speak of this? It feels a little bit, you know, non-PC. It feels a bit like... Dark, I want to be happy. I want to talk about God's love, his blessings. I want to come to church and be encouraged. I want to hear something relevant to my life. And often that's what we Christians do. We do focus on the things that feel relevant to us, how to be a better husband or wife or mother or father or worker or friend. And we can form our church services and our thinking around those things, about how we live our best lives now for God. But here's the thing, what makes us think we know what's relevant for us? What makes us think we know what's relevant for us, what we need to hear? I mean, do you know what will happen tomorrow? I don't. But we think we know what we need to hear and we get frustrated when we don't hear it from God's word or from churches. But God in his wisdom has given us in his word what we need to hear. It's called the whole counsel of God. It's, it's the scriptures in his word. And we don't need to keep going for fresh revelations from God as if you know, God's plan from the beginning of time has changed and he needs to update it. We have all we need here in God's word in the Bible. All we need for life and godliness. We have God's word to us, his living and active word. And so as we open up the first chapter of Revelation to the story of human history, We heard these words in Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it. Because the time is near. As we grapple as humans with what is relevant, as we seek a word from God that's relevant to our lives, God says this, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and who keeps what is written in it. Why? Why does that bring blessing? Because the time is near. The end of the story of human history as we know it is almost here. That's what the Bible keeps holding out. It's close. The events that Revelation describes are on our doorsteps or perhaps already happening throughout human history up until this point. In other words, what God thinks you and I need to hear from him, what he thinks is most relevant for us, is what Revelation has to say. And Revelation isn't all God has to say to us. There's 65 other books he's preserved for us in the Bible. But in his wisdom, the last word from God, that he keeps speaking through the word like he does the rest of the scriptures. But the last word in the canon of the Bible is, listen, the end is near. This is what you need to hear. And the fact that it's been near for the past 2,000 years is going to help us try and understand how we view the end in a moment. But we've seen over the last few weeks that consistent tone of judgment. The end of the world is coming on you and me and every person that's ever lived. We will all stand before God and give an account of why we have pretended to be God, taking our lives into our own hands, determining for ourselves what's right and wrong. God wants us to see that there is nothing more relevant to you and I and the rest of the human race than the reality of Judgment Day. So many churches and Christians focus on how to live a better life, how God wants to give us life to the full and what we think life to the full is. 
But it's as if God's word says that this life now, our time here and now, and how, how much we enjoy it, is but a blip on the radar of eternity. For every single one of us will come face to face with the judgment of God in the story of humanity. We have a bigger problem than living the fulfilled life. There is a more relevant message the world needs to hear. In my last year of high school, I would occasionally drive to school. I got my driver's license and school was a 45-minute drive away from where we lived. So it was, a, it was, a, it was a kind of a, a long way. And I went through some forests and some twisty roads. It was, it was a nice drive and I liked driving. I remember one time driving on my way to school. It was early-ish in the morning, listening to music in the car. It's kind of like the world's great. The, the roads were kind of curvy. And I saw this other car coming along in the distance, pretty normal. I'm bopping to the music as you do. I don't know what was playing. It was a long while ago. And this other car flashed my lights. They're their lights at me. I'm like, well, what's that for? Don't slow down. Maybe we're going too fast or... Nothing else, no other cars flashed their light. I didn't take much notice. I kept going, kept listening to my music. There was no police, nothing out of the ordinary. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is fine. About another 10 minutes had gone past. I'm, I'm driving along. Cars came past, no flashing. I came around the corner in a 100 kilometer an hour zone, and there was a tree across the whole road. And I'm like, ah, oh, slammed on the brakes. There was no ABS in the car. Car just started skidding towards this big tree. And I'm like, no, why didn't I listen to the guy who flashed his lights? As I kind of went towards and the car stopped just before I hit the tree. <laughs> the book of Revelation is a flashing lights for humanity. It's the reality that just around the corner is the day of judgment. And how you go on that day will be determined by how you respond to the flashing light of what is to come. This could not be more relevant. And so what we're going to do now is to spend some time thinking through these views of the end. See, so often we think the story of human history is about me, how we humans can flourish. But what God tells us is the story of human history is a story of God's contested rule to his uncontested rule. See, in the beginning, God creates the world. He places humanity over uh, the world in Adam and Eve to rule the world his way under him. But in Genesis 3, we meet someone not living under the rule of God, this serpent. Satan steps onto the, to the scene and suggests that humanity can make better choices than God can. You won't surely die, he says, if you eat this fruit that looks good and smells good. You won't surely, you just become like God, determining good and evil. And we see at this very point the contested rule of God. The one who made the world, the one who sustains the world, has his rule contested by a serpent and then a rebellious humanity who would rather listen to themselves than God. And from that point in the story of the Bible is a story of how God's contested rule will end. And his uncontested rule will go on forever. Compared to that uncontested rule that we're going to see next week as we look at the last section of Revelation, our time here and now is just so short, so insignificant. But to the God who made us, the story of human history is incredibly important. Not because we are the most important thing in his creation, but because God's reign and rule is the most important thing in creation. He has chosen to reign and rule with his creation despite our rebellion at incredible cost to himself. And we must remember it is not first and foremost for our sake, but for his glory so the universe can see that God is God. They can see his uncontested rule and reign for all eternity. And he chooses to do that with us, with those who trust his son. But in order for that reign to be uncontested, Justice must come. Evil must be put away with. We've seen last week that that will happen at the command of Jesus. It won't be hard. He will speak and evil will be overcome. But one of the big questions Christians have asked over the centuries, one of the biggest disagreements has been, what will the end look like? And what order will it happen? And the passage that describes really the biggest disagreement in all of Christian history is the one we just had read for us today. And I get that privilege of explaining it to us all. So what we're going to do today is have a look at the different views of what the end looks like before we see how it affects our stories today. Now I need to say as we look at the story of the end, which is the second point in your outline, 
This is not our normal diet of preaching. We normally walk, work through books of the Bible and kind of just see what each passage is saying. Today we are going to pull some concepts apart and look at a few places. It's, it's going to feel a little bit luxury, probably a little bit long. It's a long weekend, and so I'm taking license from that. But we thought it was important to try and outline the four major views and try and understand what each of them are trying to hold on to. At the same time, which direction Scripture leans us to. We're going to have question time after the talk. So if you have questions, text them to the number that will come up on the screen. We'd love to hear those questions. We probably won't get to answer them all, but do put them in. Ask away. I can also guarantee you that the position I land on today will not be the position that everyone in this room lands on. And I need to say that's okay. My aim is not to convince you of our position as a church. It's hopefully just to show you how each of these positions come from Scripture and how they wrestle together with what God's Word has said. And if you end up today holding a different view, that's totally fine. We just need to make sure that we do that with gentleness and love and respect. We need to keep sitting under the Word of God. And we don't just be quiet about it. We kind of bounce it off one another and see how it kind of affects the way we view the rest of Scriptures, consistently testing our view against it. So as we start the story of the end... Why don't I pray that God would help us to understand this and his word together now. Let's pray. Father, as we come to these views of the end, as we start thinking through what it is and what it will look like, give us humility. Humility to recognize we don't know everything. Humility to recognize that we come with our own presuppositions coming into this and our own leanings. And we ask that by your spirit and through your word, you would fix our eyes on what is clear in your scriptures And that that would be a great blessing to the way we live now and who we live for. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story of the end is where we're at. And throughout history, there's been really three major views in Christianity about the end. And in the last 200 years, another version of that end has come, become more popular. So I've outlined those, those four views in your outline. You'll see on the next page, there's some views there that'll be helpful. Going to get us through some interactive work. Uh, see if you can pick the error. Anyway, there you go. Maybe there isn't one. Uh, and so I do want you to hear, these are the four views that Christians differ on. These are all Christian views. This is not heresy to kind of hold any of these views. You're not like, oh, you're not a Christian. You don't trust in Jesus anymore. So I want us to really hear that together. Um, And I'm probably between two of them. I think could be like, yeah, possible. Um, But there's a few words we're going to need to understand in order to make sense of the crazy long words that I've just put in the outlines. Um, The first is, and you can maybe write these definitions down in, in some space on your outline. The first word that we need to understand is the word pre right? Just means before. So pre equals before. Got it. Simple. Second is post. Post is not what goes through the mail. It's what comes after. Maybe that's why they call it the post, because it (laughs) takes a long time to get to us. Happens after. So pre and post. Those words will be helpful. Then there's this idea of a tribulation. Next word, tribulation. That word just means distress, oppression, affliction. It's just not a nice time. It's a time of horrible things going on. And we've seen a number of these events going on throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, Look with me, Revelation 7. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne in the Lamb. He's seeing forward the picture of all those who trusted in Jesus. And we're told in verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. There's the word. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So Revelation holds there'll be some kind of tribulation, some kind of um, distress. And we've seen that through the seven scrolls and the seven trumpets and the seven seals of, of kind of God's judgment coming across the world in varying degrees. We've seen the cyclical nature of that. Um, you can look at Mark 13 a little later and see that there's days of tribulation that will come before the end, possibly. Although people differ on what's happening there. There's lots of questions around when this tribulation is and what it will look like. But just for now, recognize the Bible speaks of some sort of tribulation. Our next word to kind of understand the end is millennium now, uh, or, or millennial. <laughs> now, millennial is not someone who just complains when everything isn't kind of the way they like it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Love you guys. I'm right on the edge of that, but I don't, I don't think I operate in that world, which makes me think I'm superior, which is probably sin. So sorry about that. <laughs> the millennium is this period of 1,000 years. That's what a millennia is, 1,000 years. Uh, It could be a literal thousand years, or it could be figurative. 
Uh, different people view this differently in these views. Uh, lots of the numbers in Revelation are figurative. They're pointing out as signs and symbols. But it'll be worth us understanding that the millennium is a time that the Bible talks about really in one verse only, or one chapter only, chapter 20 of Revelation. It's the only place in the Bible uh, that this is there. And this, so many people disagree about this section of the millennium and when Jesus comes, before it, after it. Um, but it's really just in this place. So this is why we're kind of taking time to do it now. Um, we thought about doing it as a going deeper, but not everyone comes to going deepers. Shame on you. So now you've got to have it here. So next time there's going deepers, make sure everyone comes and then wait, we, we won't get this sort of thing in church. Um, <laughs> so let's have a look at what the millennium is. Um, Revelation 20 verse 4. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. This is a picture he's seeing, right? I saw the souls of those who've been beheaded because of the testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead, that's the millennia, thousand years. That's it. You're like, ah, okay, got it. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Okay. So it sounds like uh, at some point, all those who are dead are going to rise and with Jesus and then reign on the earth for a thousand years. Then there's going to be a, maybe a second resurrection. That's the first. A second resurrection and everyone else will be raised from the dead. And then some more stuff will happen. That's kind of what it could sound like. Then we hear about this first resurrection. That's your next word. The first resurrection. Um, what is that? <laughs> what is this first resurrection? Well, look at verse 6 of chapter 20. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. There's our word again. So we find out that the first resurrection speaks of those who reign with Christ in the millennium, in this thousand years. In verse 5, when you, when you read that alone in 6, it sounds like the resurrection happens. So in verse 5, we just read earlier, it sounds like that first resurrection happens at the end of the thousand-year period. But verse 6 clears that up. The second death has no power over them, the one who shares in the first resurrection. They'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So in verse 5, it sounded like just earlier, did you see that? The rest, um, they were raised... For, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So it happens at the start of that thousand year reign. They get raised. And you're like, okay, there's some sort of expectation here that um, those who trusted in Jesus will, will reign with Christ for that period of a thousand years. And then there'll be some sort of other resurrection, perhaps. There's something going on there. Some sort of resurrection. What is that? Great question. All right. Next word. <laughs> this is the second death. Hey, how are you going for space? Are we, are we going all right? Second death. Um, the second death is, is actually quite clear and simple. Uh, it's the final judgment or the result of that final judgment. It, it's, it's hell. So Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for people to die once, first death, and after this, judgment. Also, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So those that don't trust in Jesus... They won't face that second death, that, that judgment. They, their names are written in the book of life. Jesus has paid the price for them. So the second death is judgment and, and, and hell in that sense. But the thing everyone's trying to work out is what Hebrews 9 just talked about, is the second coming of Jesus. That's what this is really all about. And this is the second last word we'll have. It's the second coming of Jesus, right? Who knows when that is? Show of hands. That's right. Not even Jesus says he knows that. Um, in fact, only the Father knows when he will return. But we spend all our time trying to work out when it is. It's really interesting that this is one part of the Bible that, that talks about what happens. But the rest of the New Testament, basically, some of the Gospels talk about what the end will be like. They don't push us to be looking when will it happen, looking for the signs of a time. They just talk through the reality. Jesus is coming back. Peter says that very clearly. Don't you worry. He's coming back. He's just giving more people time to repent and, and, and come to him. The scriptures tell us when Jesus returns, everyone will know. It'll be very clear. The world will be going, oh, I think this is it, maybe. Uh, that is what the Jehovah's Witness Church says. They, they, they thought Jesus came back in 1914, and then they got that wrong, and they said, no, he came back in 1917. Then he didn't come back in 1917, so they said, no, he did come back in 1914. And that's kind of how that works. So they think Jesus has already come back, um, which 
yeah, is not what aligns with the scriptures. So the second coming of Jesus and when that is, is really the big question uh, that we'll look at. Finally, last word, eternity. Basically, every Christian position lands us in this word, eternity. There are those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, who will live forever on a new earth that we'll hear about next week. And man, it's exciting. Do not miss next week. Uh, Next week is awesome. (laughs) Their sins are forgiven. We get to see people face to face with God. No more mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things done away with you. Like, yes, the uncontested reign of God and how great that will be for those that have trusted in Jesus. And what you'll see is all the Christian views end up with those who trust in Jesus in eternity with him. So we all end up in the same place. And so, okay, at that point, you can just go to sleep and go, great, we'll we'll end up in the same place. But God's given us some things to work out, so we're going to spend some time understanding them. Um, Where they differ is what happens between the cross and Jesus' return. So let me introduce you to our first view of the end. Uh, It's called historic premillennialism, or if you want to be precise, it's post-tribulation premillennialism. So there's, there's your words. Now we've got some words sorted. Uh, after or post means there's a, Jesus' return comes post-tribulation, after a period of great distress, but before the millennial reign of Christ. So period of distress, you'll see the little picture up on the screen, the Christian millennial views one. Jesus' first coming, and there's a period of tribulation, then Jesus' second coming happens. I'll go this way for you. And then we've got the millennium. So this thousand-year reign where Christ rules on earth in this post-trib, pre-millennial position. And then Jesus comes back in the last judgment and then eternity. So where do we get that from? We'll look at Revelation 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from prison. He will go out and deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle Their number is like sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth, surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came from heaven and consumed them. These are all those that have rejected God and and Satan and his cronies. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they'll be tormented day and night forever. That happens after this thousand years. And it's this picture that then Satan is released, and then he's got some time to deceive the nations in this um, historic premillennial view. He goes around and tries to convince the nations to reject. And there's a, there's a great battle. Um, but Satan then is easily defeated in what's called the last judgment. And those that are with him um, and him are thrown into the lake of fire forever. And all those whose names are written in the book of life who have trusted Jesus live life forever with him on a, on a new earth. It's called historic premillennialism because many of the early church fathers appear to hold that view, like Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Papias. Um, if you don't know them, you, know, you can read textbooks on this stuff. Sorry for the nerdiness, but just helpful to kind of understand as we get to this passage to actually deal with what we've looked at in history. Now, for what it's worth, I think this view is the second best view. At some points, I'm like, "Ah, this actually actually could be right. There are moments where I'm like, I think it kind of really wants to hold to um, a non-figurative view, mostly of, of Revelation as it works through in the order that's there and tries to work out in some sort of chronology the way the Bible has these things work out. It could be true. Uh, so if you hold this view, great. You can encourage me. And when Jesus comes back and we're in eternity, we can go, oh, you were right. I don't think we'll be worried about that. I think we'll be amazed at Jesus, actually. But um, <laughs> there we go. Um, it's also the view that um, John Piper holds to. So if you're listening to John Piper, like, oh, okay, it must be true. No, no, it's not necessarily. Uh, it's also got some problems as well. Um, it holds to a literal reading of a thousand-year reign and a literal order when I don't think Revelation is chronological when you just read Revelation itself. When, when you go through, it seems like what happens in Revelation 19 when this judgment happens that they would call this great period of tribulation is the end. It's, it's actually the same thing as the judgment at the end, which would put us in this millennial period before what happens now in Revelation 19. And then Revelation 20 happens. You're like, well, where, where is this? Where is the great end? So there's some bits here that... It, kind of doesn't make sense as we work through to me as much. But let's then have a look at the second view. It's called a pre-tribulation dispensational premillennialism. There you go, you can say that if you're trying to get to sleep at night. That's not working. Just try and say that over and over and see how it goes. Uh, This view really came into existence about 200 years ago. 
uh, through a guy called um, Darby, another guy called Schofield, who translated the Schofield's Bible. Very common view in America today. Um, the most popular kind of prominent person that will push this forward that we'll talk about is John MacArthur. I have this um, dispensational pre-trib, pre-millennial view. Anyone out of Dallas Seminary in the States will kind of be in this world or that there's, an, there's, there's books written on just this view and the different views within this view. Um, I've been dreading this sermon for a number of months. Anyway, let's try and... Um, oh, and if you've read the... Who's read the Left Behind series? Okay, I wish that was a series that was Left Behind. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but there's some points about rapture and a rapture that happens. Now, what is rapture? Well, let's have a look at the picture on the screen. We've got Jesus first coming. Great. We're all together. This is easy. Brilliant. Then there's some time. And then what happens in this view is that... Um, there's a secret rapture where some are lifted up with Christ. Christ comes back. Then there's a period of tribulation. And then there's the second coming with the church. And then there's a millennial reign on earth. And then we get to the last judgment and then eternity. So here, this view, again, like the historic premillennialism, views the thousand-year reign as literal. It thinks that chapter 19 happens before the thousand-year reign. Um, and, and so we have this tribulation that happens and judgment and there's a thousand year reign and the other things kind of move on from there. It, it holds that there is this um, secret rapture of the church that some are in the field and just get sucked up uh, prior to the battle of chapter 19 um, where Christians are taken out of the world. Then there's this seven year period based on, on Daniel and some prophecies in Daniel that talk about when the Antichrist will be revealed. Uh, and then Christ will come publicly. Satan will be bound for a thousand years and the church will just go really well. Um, they'll, be, they'll be gone. Israel will remain at that point. And then there's this rule of Jesus in Israel. And so this view is very strong on seeing the temple rebuilt because we need to rebuild from Israel. We want to see the literal things that the, the scriptures are holding out where the temple is pulled back together happen. And then chapter 20 will happen and at the end and the return of Jesus. And that will kind of then go into eternity. Now, again, you can ask questions either in question time or down the front a little later. I'm happy to chat through this. This view really sees a separation between the church and Israel. Um, it would see that the prom- there are different promises that are applied, that Israel has a special place, which I think Israel does have a special place in God's plan. Definitely will be the first to rise. I think there'll be a big queue in eternity, and the Jews will be at the front. <laughs> um, I'm just grafted in. I'm a Gentile. I'm not part of God's people from that part. But... Um, we would see Galatians 3 talk about that the promises that were given to Abraham were actually for Jesus. That Jesus is the true Jew and all those who trust in Jesus, there is now no more Jew or Gentile, slave or free, but we are one in Christ Jesus. So it puts a divide there that I'm, I'm not as comfortable with. Um, and it's got a big concern for what's happening politically in Israel, which is why America cares so much for Israel, because we want to see Israel ruled um, by Christians. And we want to see that happening well and God's reign come out in that way. Um, now, for me personally, it's the one I'm least convinced of. I'm happy to chat. I know many of us here who are Christian brothers and sisters are in this camp. And I love you. And I'm sure if we're getting raptured up together, I'll be like, ah, you're right. You know, at that moment, you can laugh at me and go, I told you. Uh, but I'm, I'm not as convinced as we keep reading the scriptures um, that it is this way. Because I think this view particularly takes a view of the Bible that says we have to interpret everything it says Literally, And what I mean by that is I think a little bit literalistically. It gives priority to the Old Testament promises. So if God promised that Israel will have this land, then God will give us that land because he's promised that. Um, but what we see throughout the scriptures is God said a lot of things around his promises that get expanded and fulfilled in Jesus. And so I think next week, we, as we get to Revelation 21, we're going to see that God gives us not just a land in Israel, but a whole new earth. It's an expanded picture of that. In the same way he gave us the Old Testament sacrificial system, but the blood of bulls and goats, even though God said the blood of bulls and goats would wash away sin, um, it never did. It was always pointing people forward to the fulfillment of that, a better blood of Jesus who would come. And the book of Hebrews talks through that. And so it comes really, this view really wants to hold God's word as that ultimate authority, which I love. I love. And wants to go, I'm sitting under the word of God and I'm really wrestling to make it say what it says. But as we get to Revelation, I'm convinced it itself, as we read it, the genre that it is, the way it speaks, keeps speaking in these cyclical ways as we move through it. Uh, and there's metaphors there. Even the thousand-year reign of Christ talks about that. And we're like, ah, oh, is it literal or not? Well, just before that, 
John tells us that, that Satan was bound with some chains. I don't know, are there really big chains to bind him? Do we actually think that they're massive chains that have kind of wrapped him in? I think generally we go, no, this is a picture of Satan being bound. God's not making some massive chains to tie him up uh, in that sense. So there's a sense where both of us can interpret the Bible in a way that is, um, it's meant to be with the metaphors that are there. It's just working out which bit is and which bit isn't. Uh, and this particular view will work really hard to go, I want to translate as much as I can as, as literal rather than metaphorical. But I think when you read through Revelation, you see uh, a number of patterns of the seven scrolls, the trumpets, the bowls. You see the repetition that we're seeing the same event from a number of different sources, not in a chronological kind of pattern in the way through it. And I'll show you that in a second. Well, let's jump into our third view. We're awake. Brilliant. No one answered. <laughs> Post-millennialism. Millennialism. Post-millennialism. Now, here's a slide. The idea here is that Jesus' second coming will come after the millennium, the reign of Christ. Now, I've got a little bit of interactive work to do here because the diagram in your outlines is wrong. Oh, mm, some people already saw it, found the problem. Have a look in your diagram on, on uh, post-millennialism. Can you see anything missing? The second coming of Jesus. Rowan. Yeah, so that's my bad. Um, so here's an updated slide to put the second coming of Jesus in, and you can interactively choose where that is on the line, although you might not get it right, because no one knows the day or the hour that Jesus is coming back. But um, write that in, the second coming of Jesus and the last judgment. But it happens after the millennium. So this millennial reign of Christ. Now this view kind of says that there's this golden age of the church coming before Jesus' return. With this post-millennial view, some people think it's a thousand literal years, but it's really hard to know when that thousand years starts because as the diagram shows, the millennium starts small with, with Christ reigning on earth through his people. And as they preach the gospel, the kingdom on earth grows and grows and grows and grows and gets bigger and bigger until finally we kind of cruise in to Jesus being reigning over all and eternity with his judgment and then eternity at that point going forward. So it's hard to know when that thousand years starts because it starts small. So you just got to wait until Jesus comes back and then count back a thousand years and go there. That's when it, that's when it started. Uh, and that's okay. Um, others... Um, We'll say maybe it's not a literal thousand years, but it's the time, generally, post-millennialists talk about the time after the destruction of the temple. So there's a, there was a kind of the great tribulation happened, all the bad stuff that Revelation is talking about. Yeah, that happened when in AD 70, when the temple was kind of taken over and, and demolished, and that was the horrible thing. And from that point on, we're now in the phase from post the temple, we should, see, should be seeing life getting better and better and better as we preach the gospel and people come to Christ and reign with Christ on earth. And then Jesus comes back at the end of that, and then judgment and eternity. Um, now, again, the, many post-millennials, most will say that the thousand years isn't literal, but it's a period like the other periods in Revelation, when through the preaching of the gospel, God's kingdom on earth will grow. Now, holding this view will push you to expect to see the world to be more Christian. This is the most optimistic view ever. I love it. If this was true, I'd be so excited um, if this is the way it happened. And it might be. <laughs> Um, we'll want to see the things promised in Revelation 21 and 22 to be happening more and more on earth, to come in now. And so if you've got a post-millennial view, you want to see God reigning on earth here and now. So you have a strong push to get Christians into government because you want Christ to be ruling on the earth now. You, you want the world around us to be following God's law and God's ways because they're good and right and you want them to live that way. And so if you are able to, you start to mandate that. And this is where we get a, a position called theonomy, which says God is ruling on earth as he is in heaven right here and now. He definitely will when his uncontested reign ends, but we want to see more of that come in now. You also see people with this view claiming we can bring the blessings of God's kingdom down to earth. So Bethel talks about this a little bit, the, the kind of the ministry that says we want to bring the kingdom to earth, God's kingdom blessing, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The Lord's Prayer says that we, that we should pray that God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so they like, we want to bring the kingdom down now and experience that now. And the question is, when does that come? Well, this says that post-millennial view says it should be getting better and better and better. You start to see people claiming healing, relief from crying, all those things as we preach the gospel more should happen now. And so also the post-millennial view has a higher position for social justice to be delivered. 
Uh, Tim Keller is actually a little bit post-millennial. And I, think there's just, I think there's some things to watch with that, but hey, he's a Christian, he's great, got so much good stuff. But we start to see that justice now is part of the mission of God. As God's kingdom grows, the wrongs of the world should be stamped out because as more people come to Christ, it should be getting better in that way. There's many varied views in this, and I'm doing disservice to all the views I'm putting forward, but I'm trying to give you a a kind of summary. So I'm sorry, come and talk to me and correct me where I've not got things right. But in its best form, post-millennialism focused on the preaching of the gospel because the word going out will change the world. And that's right, isn't it? testament keeps pointing us to do is to preach the word of the gospel so the world can see that judgment is coming and 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 our sins have been paid for in jesus and then god by his spirit changes us to be more and more like him Uh, it's actually got a great um, positive expectation and optimistic expectation but in its worst form it can become very moralistic it's about just doing what's right now i've got to tell my non-christian friends you just need to live god's way I said it's at its worst form, not at its best. You live God's way and the world will be a better place. I'm going to mandate Christian rules and that's the way you've got to live. So let's do all we can to bring you no more mourning and crying and pain. And the focus goes off the gospel and off sin and death and onto these areas. Or it can become very forceful and we just mandate the way forward. Almost like a returning to the works of the law from Old Testament Judaism, but with Christ as the fulfillment of them, but still going back and him as king in that way. But my major problem with this view is that the Bible does hold out there'll be some sort of tribulation and a period of declension before Jesus returns. The post-millennial reads Revelation 19 and sees that rider on the horse as the progress of the gospel through the age, not as the judgment of God, or they see that fulfilled in uh, the destruction of the temple. But human history doesn't seem to be going on that trajectory. Human history gets, yes, there's more Christians now, but there's also more non-Christians now. Um, It's more of of, of an up and down. It feels more cyclical, which I think is what Revelation does. It shows you that there's judgment going on and and people rebelling and God is, the world is going up and down in terms of the evil and where we are. And human history isn't getting better and better. And there's been great periods of gospel advance. With the fourth century, with Constantine, the whole Roman Empire was Christian-ish depending on what you think of where he was at. But, you know, and it's not that case at the moment. So now let me take you to the final one. Hopefully we've got some introduction in these. And this is the one that we as a church, the kind of um, pastoral team, have landed on. Uh, Again, could be wrong. Uh, We recognise there's differing views and there's differing views within each of these. So um, we love you. Let's chat. We're together. Um, We're all in that end bit if we trust in Jesus. But I think it makes the most sense of the biblical data and it's called amillennialism. Amillennialism. Uh, it literally means no millennium. Uh, but probably someone who's pre-millennial or post-millennial gave it that name because they think that the millennium doesn't exist. Well, the Bible says it exists because it's in the Bible. So we think there's a thousand-year reign. But really, amillennialism says that the reign of Christ for a thousand years, that a thousand years is just a long time. And, and actually, the reign of Christ in, as a thousand is like a lot of reign. It's a picture of, look at how big his reign will be. You hear of you know, Queen Elizabeth reign, reigned how many years? 70, someone can answer that question, should have researched it. A lot. She's the longest reigning monarch for a long time. Um, This is the reigning monarch for a thousand years. You're like, whoa, as Jesus reigns for a thousand years, it's not about the time, it's about how great his reign is. It's interesting because you can compare that to the reign of Satan as he's let out. It's just for a little while. We see as he's unbound, it's for a little bit of time. And so this view says that this reign is, is a symbol of what is going on from Jesus' resurrection to Jesus' second coming. That the millennium started the day Jesus rose from the dead. And we're now in that period where Christ reigns. And you're like, well, how are the dead, how are the martyrs raised at this point? Well, I take it that when we've trusted in Christ, we've been raised with him. And that's exactly what Paul says. When the gospel was preached, people move from death to life. And you and I, if we trust in Jesus, are now seated with God in heaven. Look at Ephesians 2.4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You're saved by grace. He also raised us up with him. I think this is the first resurrection. And seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So the period of tribulation is the period of the millennial reign of Christ as well, that that Satan is trying to do his thing. But hang on a minute. 
At that point, we go, but wasn't Satan bound? Don't we read about Satan being bound? Well, um, let's jump to why he's bound, and then I'll come back, because I skipped something. Um, Look at Revelation 20, verse 1. Here's one of the problems, and this is a problem, but I'll give you an answer. It's probably wrong. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent who was the devil, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, closed it, put a seal on it, so he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Now, what was the effect of Satan being bound? Because if we're in that period now, isn't Satan still doing his stuff? Didn't we just preach a couple of weeks ago that Satan's trying to deceive us and take us out? How can he be bound and also be working in the world around us? Well, look at the effects in this passage of his binding. He's thrown into the abyss, put a seal on it, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until a thousand years were completed. Now, if that period of time, that millennium when Satan is bound, is a time when the nations are no longer deceived, it makes sense that from Jesus' resurrection, what happens? The gospel goes to the nations. That's what Acts is all about. No longer is it just for Jews, but we see it goes to, to the world around. And as the gospel goes out, the nations are no longer deceived, but they come and turn to God like they never have before. Now, through the gospel and the work of the Spirit, Satan is bound. He can't do his work because Jesus died and risen again. That's kind of what the chains are, Jesus' death and resurrection. He's bound. He can't do his work because the gospel is now going out because God has given us his Spirit. And so the amillennial view will say that throughout this period of a millennium, Christ is reigning by those who've trusted in him and he's proclaiming, we're proclaiming the gospel to the world around. Satan is bound and the gospel can now go to the nations. Well, what happens in verse 7 when Satan's released for a little while, his reign, little, small, and he gathers people? Well, I take it that all of those in the Lamb's book of life have, have, have come to Christ. Once they're all in, God says, okay, Satan, do your worst. And then there's a short worsening at the very end of time, right before Jesus rocks up on the white horse in chapter 19 and just says, it's done. Fire from heaven, gone. Look at verse 9 of chapter 20. They came up across the breadth of the earth. This is Satan and his cronies. The, the, they uh, surrounded the encampment of the saints. They, then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who was deceived was thrown into a lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they were tormented day and night forever. It's over. It's done. It's a no contest. We're worried about this massive battle at the end. Satan's let out. Whenever all those who've trusted in Christ have come in, all in the book of life have come in, then God says, all right, Satan, do your worst. They gather together and go, ha, ha, and God goes, Bruh. And at that point, we've actually arrived at the story of human history's end, or how it will be forever. We've arrived at the uncontested rule of Christ. He's brought in thousands and thousands and thousands to a saving knowledge of his son, Remember Revelation 7 when we looked at um, the seals and he saw this picture of a number that was so large he couldn't count them? People from every tribe and language and nation. Well, the amillennial position helps us to see that all of those speakings... Let, let, there's, a, there's a quick picture of the structure of Revelation that should come up. Um, yes. So all of those seven seals, we're talking about the same period from a different view as the seven trumpets and then the seven signs and then the seven bowls. That's kind of the period of the millennium that we're in. The very end of that, we then hear the fall of Babylon, the end of evil, the final victory, 19 to 20 verse 1. And then we see, great, it's finished and into the new creation. So that's, a, that's enough of the kind of backgrounds to all of those things. So what? <laughs> Why, why have I come to church today? Why am I hearing about all these different views if they all end up here by trusting in Jesus? Well, remember, Revelation started telling us how important and blessed it is to hear this. Because despite the uncertainties, there are things that are crystal clear. In every view of the end, all of us need to come before the true and living God. All of us will give an account of how we've acted and treated him. And all of us deserve death, judgment, and hell. All our actions are recorded. And, and for those who've turned their backs on, on God, which is all of us, justice ought to be delivered and will be delivered. Evil will be punished and finally done away with. And in every single one of these accounts, Jesus is the one who brings God's justice. 
The end is the uncontested rule over all creation of Jesus. That he will be there as king of kings and lord of lords. What does that mean for us? Christianity cannot be one club among many. One way to experience religion or one way to live on earth. Because the end shows us Jesus will come back and judge the living and the dead. Christianity cannot be some teaching on how to live a better life. Just come to Jesus and he'll make your life better now. Make a better world now. This world is going to be destroyed Christianity can't be just some number of commands to follow, some things I've got to do to to live a right life before God. No, Christianity introduces us to a person, Jesus, the one who died as a slaughtered lamb, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the one who would judge the living and the dead, the King of kings and Lord of lords. There is no other option. There is nothing else in all creation that that will matter in the end other than your response to this one now and how you will fare on that last day. The idea that Jesus is some optional add-on to life to make it a bit better, that, you know, come to Jesus now and he'll just make your life that little bit better. It's ludicrous. It's repulsive. No, we come to him because I deserve death, judgment, and hell. I'm going to face him on the last day, and the great news that he brings isn't a bit better life now. It's forgiveness for my sin. It's recognizing that he is king, that he's coming back again. Now, becoming a Christian is becoming persuaded of the truth of who Jesus is. Accepting him as our king. Letting him run our lives, not us. It's not about morality or seeing a better society. Jesus will fix that in a flash. That's not an issue for him. He doesn't need us to make the world a better place. He needs us to point people to Jesus, the one who's died in our place, who's faced the punishment that we deserve. Of course, recognizing Jesus as king means we'll live a different life because we're living differently. We're living God's way in the world around us. But this view of the end is the lens which God wants us to see why you and I exist. We exist for the uncontested rule of Jesus. That's why our priority as a church and as Christians must be proclaiming the news of who Jesus is. Not having a better life, experiencing well-being, finding financial freedom, but helping people to flee the wrath that is to come as the only means of salvation. We should be people driving along the road, flashing our lights at the world around us, say judgment is around the corner. Recognize who Jesus is. Recognize he is the king. It ought to dominate our lives and actions and focus and priority and what we invest in. This life is so short compared to eternity that is so, so long. Of course, we love the world around us. We care for those that God has put in our path. We look after the creation God has given us. But that's not our main focus when you see the reality of judgment. So can I encourage you today? Do not get caught up in these views of the end. Do not spend your life working out the order of the events and When the signs of the time point me to when this thing will happen or that thing will happen, the New Testament doesn't point me that way at all. Yes, work hard on the text and what the text is saying and God has given it to us for a reason. But please notice loud and clear that the pumping theme of all of this is that Jesus is coming back. He is going to judge the living and the dead. And he has provided forgiveness and salvation in his death and resurrection. So that those who trust him now, who come to him as their king, will not face the judgment that we deserve. They get to share in the uncontested reign of the true and living God forever. We get to be called his children now and experience life after death. Weirdly, this week has been one of the hardest weeks for me of the last few years. It's nothing majorly large that happened, no kind of major events that made me go, oh, this is horrible. There's even been real moments of joy and celebration. It was a wedding on Friday, and it was a great celebration. William and Joe, it was exciting. But I've just found myself feeling tired. The responsibility of holding out the hope of the gospel, having to make decisions, having to keep putting together parts of what God's word is saying and work hard at it and make sure we're sharp at it and I've been tired of trying to see things happen, trying to see people understand how central the gospel is and been involved in some stuff with some other churches this week and seeing them being focused not on the gospel but on other areas and being so excited about these other areas. I'm so sad going, oh, I want you to see this. 
I feel like my efforts have, to try and see change and see people see the centre of Jesus have just gone backwards this week. And so I found myself, for a significant portion of this week, just wanting to give up, not on life or Christianity, but just on the sacrifice it takes to live radically for the cause of the gospel. Like, why are we doing this? It's just so hard. It'd be so much easier just to sit back and cruise. Because I came to Revelation 20, and again, I was dreading looking at all the views of the end. It's like God gently and warmly fixed my eyes on what really matters. Lovingly and slowly showed me this reality of the uncontested rule of God is coming. It's going to last forever. And it brought me out of my despair and my frustration, going, I've had enough to go, this is what matters. I really want to focus on those little blip of time now, thinking I want the most out of life here when there is an eternity to come. And it's my view today that he does that for you as well. That if you don't yet know Jesus, if he isn't yet your king, and you're not living for him, that today you get to experience life that doesn't end in judgment. That you see what Jesus is bringing and go, man, this is amazing. That he's died in my place and risen again. And today, if you do trust Jesus, can I encourage you, as God has encouraged me this week, let the coming of the uncontested rule of Jesus be the thumping heartbeat of every part of this short time God has given us to see more and more people on that last day standing in him, to live sacrificially, to be wisely focused not on a better life now, on how I can live now, on what life looks like for me, but on the better one who gives life that lasts forever. It's my prayer that we individually and as a church would be focused with our joy and our hope and our purpose on the uncontested reign of Jesus and how great that will be. And that we will act for that glory and for that purpose with all of our energy and effort and time until the day Jesus returns or takes us home. Will you join me in that prayer? Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at the different views of the end, there are so many things that we are uncertain on. So many things you've not given us clarity in. But what you have shown us is the reality of the uncontested reign and rule of your son, Jesus. Would you help us to fix our eyes on him? to see how great that will be and to see our part in it of proclaiming the news of Jesus here and now, that our sins have been paid for and that life with you as your child is on offer for us. We ask that you'd fix our eyes on that reality and so help us to live with Jesus as our King. We long for that day in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful, and if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.